podcast that you're listening to definitely on Christmas Day and not a few days after. I'm one of your hosts of the Kicking and Screaming podcast, Vanessa Guerrero. I'm your other host, Elijah Taylor. And those were some wild presumptions. Yeah, that this is their uh, Christmas plans. Also, definitely their with favorite us. podcast. And their favorite podcast. They woke up Christmas morning and were like, this is my favorite one. I'm listening to it right now. If L- that is you... Uh, let us know. We'll send you a prize. We'll send you a prize. Um, yeah, uh, if you just speak it into the world, it becomes true. I'm sorry. I got to get oh, our cat yeah. to stop rubbing her fucking face on all of the cable connections. <laughs> she wants to be a part of it. She's She wants to be a part of our she, holiday episode. She knows it's the Christmas episode. She's trying to spread that cheer. And she also doesn't respect you anymore because you've been a puppet for several episodes. That's true. She's she's dragged you around the apartment many times. For those of you, if you're listening for the first time on Christmas, please tell us who you are because we're going to give you an even greater prize. Uh, <laughs> I love the idea that someone discovered this Christmas day and was like, yep, that's my plan. Hell yeah, we love you. Um, no, Elijah was turned into a puppet due to some very ambiguous ma- magic several episodes ago and he a, hasn't turned back. It was a cube-related incident. It was a cube-related incident. Not the one from the movie Cube, which we covered, but a different cube. Yeah. But um, yeah. Yeah, it's the holidays, and we were trying to figure out um, what we wanted to do specifically for a Christmas episode, and I'm actually pretty jazzed about this one before we, like, get into it and read comments, Um, but I think we have a real treat for you today. Um, I'm just very hype, and it's in the morning, and we've literally never recorded a podcast in the morning before. That's true. It's usually when we're, like, on our way to bed. Yeah, so. I haven't had the chemical cocktail I need to keep myself alive every day. Yeah, so the the energy is uh is different. It's good. It's a different energy. It's a it's hype, also, clean energy. It's also Christmas Eve energy. It's also Christmas Eve energy because it's Christmas Eve. Yeah, we're uh, recording this next to a Christmas tree. It's very, uh, it's very sparkly. Elijah's wearing pajamas with uh, Yetis, wearing Santa hats oh, wow. on them. Yeah, I am. This is an extremely Christmas uh, vibe. This uh, is a very Christmas vibe. Also, we are a, a non-denominational uh, holiday podcast, so yeah, you know, we're saying Christmas a lot, but just you know, happy holiday season in general. I know yeah. we're we're late to some, but you know, happy. Happy winter holidays, everyone. Happy winter we're, holidays, everyone. Happy solstices. Yeah, we're not, uh, there's no theology in this podcast. Oh, yeah. My only God, uh, God, do do I really have a God that isn't uh, cats and horror movies? Cats and horror movies. Is that one God? Because it's a horrifying visage yeah. that, you, that you've painted. Yeah, she's a six-armed God, and she's the goddess of... Uh, cats and horror movies uh and uh wow i think i just astral projected (laughs) i need coffee anyways um we uh worshiping this new god just worshiping this new god um we're gonna go ahead and read some of your comments but uh stay tuned for some extra fun treats before we wrap up this year because we are so thankful that you've stuck through us through pretty much the entirety of this pandemic um, we started this at this 
top of it because it was just something that we wanted to do together. And we just have this very lovely community of people that like watch these movies and talk to us about it and tweet us about it. And, um, am I going to get emotional on air? Maybe, but it's just been like a sense of, uh, creativity and community that I haven't felt in a very long time. So to all of you listening right now, and especially if you're listening on Christmas, I love you and I'm very thankful for you. Oh, I love you all too. Uh, but the the ones who are listening on Christmas, I love you extra. <laughs> Everyone who's listening on a different day, I love you like twenty five percent less. Only like twenty five percent less, but it's still like a pretty significant. Yeah, no, amount that's of a love. substantial amount of love. And speaking of the love, uh, let's get into some of these comments that again we will always read on air because uh, we just like interacting with y'all, and also y'all are funny. Yeah, you can tweet anything <clears throat> at me, and I'll read it on air. No. No, I'll read don't, it on promise don't promise that him that. Don't promise him No, I won't. God, <laughs> especially not with known enemy of the podcast, Ken Hanley, listening. Oh, yeah. He specifically sent fabric moths to us so that they'd eat at Elijah's puppet skin. <laughs> son of a bitch. That son of a bitch. No, a while back, I just, uh, as a quick Ken Hanley anecdote, and the reason that I can't promise to read anything that you say on air, uh, a while back uh, when I was doing a merchandise for the company bunny ears uh there was a like a notes section where you could make special requests and it became kind of a running bit because it was a comedy brand that uh you could request like anything and you know me the merch guy would like do my best to fulfill that request uh so somebody requested that the shirt be like gently caressed and told that it was a good shirt and so I sent them a video of me, like, gently caressing the shirt and whispering, you're a good shirt. And they were like, oh, that's great, and, like, tweeted it. And then Ken Hanley was like, I would like a written and signed confession that Elijah Taylor committed the O.J. Simpson murders. Oh, that's funny, because that's actually one of the comments that he oh, left on our... Son uh, of a bitch. I, I believe he left it on Twitter and not in Apple reviews. Um, would be incredible if he created an account. <laughs> if he reviewed our podcast, I was like, it's good, except one of the hosts is known murderer, Elijah Taylor. He literally tweeted at us, if I rate and review on a platform, will Elijah admit to the murders of uh, Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman? God and damn it. he's just asking us asking for us to release that Chris Hansen video uh, that we do have the audio of. That's true. Um, so, yeah, uh, let us let us know if you want us to release the video <laughs> yeah, that this, Elijah this can escalate obtained Ken of Chris Hansen making some very lofty accusations some at former really, Fangoria editor-in-chief Ken Hanley. Some really wild <clears throat> accusations. Truly some wild accusations that we didn't pay for. Anyways, <laughs> um, our first comment comes from our incredible producer Sam herself at Naked Comedy with uh, a picture of you and I um, you of course in your puppet form with this pic really highlights how Neskritten could crush puppet Elijah with one boob if she wanted to <laughs> and you're so lucky that I don't want to because this is a strong ass titty I, I believe that I'm in awe of its power I feel like it could crush anything in our home uh, and then next up is at BJ Colangelo with, is this where I tell you that I have a baby puppet and a cool dude puppet and a Count Von Count puppet and a poodle puppet? Uh, BJ c continuing to be one of the coolest people alive, uh, bar none. Extremely cool person. BJ and Harmony, extremely cool uh, folks that I'm so lucky to know uh, that I guess own a large amount of puppets. Yeah. No, I I got really excited because I thought, 
that similarly to me, they were like living puppets imbued with the soul of a, of a cursed human. And so I was like, Oh cool. Like I can make friends, you know, kind of like get a support group going, but it turns out they're just like regular, you know, just like inanimate, non-living, non-sentient puppets, uh, which is still like, you know, it's still very cool that she has that puppet collection, but I'm, you need uh, friends. I'm still very alone. Um, our next comment comes from Ian McAndrew. We love you. Uh, we love you, Ian McAndrew. A story in the end. What's more fun than listening to the Kick Scream, um, Kicking and Screaming podcast? Listening to it while playing the Christopher Lambert version of Raiden in uh, Mortal Kombat 11. That sounds like a fun ass afternoon. That sounds very good. We have Mortal Kombat 11. I believe we like have all of the DLC and expansions. Do we? I, yeah, I didn't know there was a Christopher Lambert costume, uh, but that's dope as hell. <laughs> yeah, we got to do that. Uh, the let's see at Reason Over Dogma on Twitter is Kick Scream Pod aware of hashtag Hero and the Terror? That shit was the bomb when I was seven. I'm not, but you just inspired us to look that up and bring it up on our next episode uh, based on it? our findings. What is it? That sounds interesting. Hero what? and the Terror. I gotta. I want to Google it right now while you read the next comment right, so Google I can it say right something about it. While I read the next comment. Wow. And uh, our final comment comes from Luca Tomi Plaza at Lowbrow. Oh, and Elijah, oh, if you really... Oh, at Lowbrow. Air no, horns. no. God damn it. Air horn. I'll put an air horn right here. Oh, and Elijah, if you really think Dim Mac is fake, then you clearly haven't seen the documentary Bloodsport. (laughs) (laughs) Also, Bloodsport, uh, great film. Uh, Really, like, important, formative movie uh, for me. Uh, when, when I was, uh, growing up, uh, never, never knew my dad. Uh, and I had a tendency to just like project, uh, father figure vibes onto any like person in media that my mother, uh, would talk about a lot. And my mom was like really in love with Jean-Claude Van Damme. So I watched a lot of JCVD movies and I was like, he's my karate dad. (laughs) I know he he doesn't do karate specifically, but you know, uh, I I just was like a, a huge fan and had this uh, weird sort of like whimsy attached to JCVD as a kid, uh, so Bloodsport was a was a big deal for me, uh, and also is a hilarious film because it's inspired by like the memoirs and stories of a complete like fraud and con man and lunatic, a dude who just like. I guess just existed in a time where if you lied confidently enough, nobody, like, really called you on it. You know, people weren't, like, Googling what you said to be like, that's not real. But he he would just be like, yeah, I went to the, the woods and, uh, you know, competed in this secret underground martial arts tournament. I had to kill 50 men with my secret illegal kung fu and people are just like all right sounds good and he's like yeah i have a trophy to prove it and everyone's like tight we believe you definitely like, I mean, he's got the trophy so he must have done it yeah that's how just, that works just <laughs> wild to me and i love it because like if anyone had ever like you know just just punched this guy i feel like his lies would have fallen apart really pretty quickly, quickly. but at the time it was like if someone tells you they know like mystical kung fu secrets that explode your organs you're like ah, i believe not, you i'm not gonna test it he might he might know it um did you find out uh what that was yeah so hero and the terror uh is a looks like a, a chuck norris uh like kind of crime thriller uh in which 
a Los Angeles policeman searches an old theater for an escaped killer killer hulk called the terror <laughs> okay it's a, a killer called the terror and the synopsis describes him as a killer hulk so i'm assuming it's got some like kind of slasher creature villain vibes where he's a big scary guy and a martial arts cop has to get him so it might be on the same uh same spectrum as blood moon oh my god thank you for letting us know reason yeah. over dogma we definitely have to check it out we and gotta check it out oh my god What's happening? Do you do you hear that magical swirling noise that I'm definitely gonna remember to put in post? What Elijah, is that? the validation it's... of all of these comments and reviews oh. is turning you human again. It's happening. My felt. It's turning to skin. Oh, this is a disgusting it transformation. It hurts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm human again. Yeah, you are. And boy, are you sweaty. <laughs> but I'm real psyched to have you and all of your nethers back in my life. Uh, so with you being human, let's get on to our feature presentation. I'm going to find some pants. Yeah, find some find some find some human pants and, and not those little Build-A-Bear pants that we pinned to your lower region earlier. <laughs> now, <clears throat> when I came down to picking my feature presentation. I was like, I can throw us all a curveball or I can lean in hard to a classic. And I decided to lean in hard to a classic because I really want to break down A, why this is amazing, B, how there's still not some people in my life that have seen it, even though I think they'll love it and I'm hoping that this will be the thing that convinces them. Um, and C, that it's just pure magic and it's been a holiday tradition for me. So with that, your feature presentation is... Nineteen seventy four's Black Christmas. Because you said the date first, I thought you messed up the title. <laughs> I thought you like you started with nineteen, and I was like, no, it's Black Christmas. It's Black Christmas, <laughs> but specifically the seventies one. Because every time I bring it up, people think I'm either talking about the remake in the early two thousands or the one in twenty nineteen. I am talking about I this one. There's two. There's two wow. remakes. Wow. Um, I'm talking about this one, uh, directed by Bob Clark. Who, if you're not a you know huge horror fan, um. Um, and you're listening for either the kicking aspect of it or you just like hearing me talk, uh, you might know Bob Clark from A Christmas Story. Uh, So he's the king of Christmas in two very different uh, ways because Christmas Story, um, I'm just going to go on record now and admit, not my favorite Christmas movie. Christmas Story is the you'll shoot your eye out, right? Yeah. uh, Yeah, okay. And I'm like a Home Alone to all of the other reindeer kind of Christmas gal. Um, All of the other reindeer being about a Jack Russell chair, your voice by Drew Barrymore in a uh, Matt Grenning uh, 2D computer animated movie. Anyways. um, Oh, it's... It's animated. It's animated. I don't know why this whole time, because you've been telling me about it. I've never seen all of the other reindeer. I thought it was a live action dog that could talk, which would also be very cool. It would be cool, but no, there's also like a flea and a penguin that's a paper salesman. Um, But uh, Christmas Story isn't like my favorite Christmas movie, but I love Black Christmas. It's up there for just one of my favorite movies ever uh it it has every right to be like a crown jewel in horror history um because not only did it like set many many trends um but 
it also just from beginning to end has like some serious flawless decision making that makes it a movie that honestly gets better every watch. Um, from the first time I've seen it to now, I'm happier and I enjoy it more every time because it's one of those movies that upon rewatch, knowing that it stays good and intact, you're like, hell yeah, I feel better than I did before versus like watching something and being like, that aged like shit and my insides feel sad. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Langoliers. Uh, oh, did, did Langoliers age poorly? <laughs> <laughs> No, I just had, like, more fondness for it. Like, remembering the VHS that, like, had the TV uh, movie or uh, yet burned onto it when I was a kid. And then I watched it again with Olivia as an adult. Um, <laughs> and that was some stuff. Um, I, was, I was trying in that moment to think of, like... You want to roast me so fucking no, bad. No, it caught me off guard just because I was trying to think of, like, yeah, what's something that, like, I really loved that I know, like, aged poorly, and I was trying to think of things that were, like, uh, you know, problematic in ways that you don't, uh, you know, realize when you're a kid, and then you watch, you know, ten years later, and you're like, oh, this is actually gross. I love um, Ace Ventura. Oh, yeah, I, I was never uh, an Ace Ventura fan, uh, just in general. It was something that, like, my older cousins liked, and I thought they were dumb, <laughs> and so most of the <laughs> stuff they liked, I was like, you're dumb. Um, I mean, apologies if any of my older cousins are listening to this podcast, but, uh, you know, y'all are cool now. When I was a kid, I thought you were dumb, <laughs> but I was, I was kind of a, I was a jerk. I was judgmental. Uh, but no, I was never an Ace Ventura fan, but I, I can definitely see that. Uh, the only one that came to mind was not a movie that I liked in the first place, but, uh, gonna gonna reference it again on this podcast, Freddy versus Jason, uh, because you I- You can't stop. I can't stop, but I, I- uh, saw it a few years back. It was playing as like part of a horror marathon, and there's a scene in which uh, Freddy looks at uh, a black woman and says, mm, "Dark meat." No. And you're, like, you're like, "Oh, that's <gasps> terrible." And then she looks at him and is like, <laughs> "She she says the the sweater makes him look like a faggot, <laughs> and it's." just awful i don't know if we should bleep that entire section but it's in freddy versus jason uh i mean i sorry the reason i laughed at langoliers though is i was thinking it was gonna be something like that and then you said langoliers which was like oh no i was just gonna say it's chill because you you've 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 done your time and you've kissed a lot of boys that's true yeah i i feel like i've been called that more than i've ever said it so (laughs) you know (laughs) There's a lot of horror movies where upon rewatch, I'm just like, Ugh. even movies that I like have fondness for, but like I dissect them because you should do that to the art that you like. You shouldn't hold things to like a stupid monolith that, you know, you can never investigate why something was like dumb or fucked up or weird. Uh, case in point, a movie that I love, but has a lot of like very uncool shit in it. Uh, Silence of the Lambs, because believe it or not horror which is boundary pushing um and 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 visceral and upsetting on purpose and great can also do all of those things but also like in an uncool way cross right, a line right. um i think when you're trying really hard to be edgy and transgressive uh 
Yeah, sometimes that doesn't age well. Or sometimes not even like just trying to be edgy and transgressive. Um, you completely misunderstand uh, how someone behaves or thinks or speaks. Um, you just have the completely wrong take on something that isn't based out of like experience. Right. So you're just kind of talking out your ass. Um, it's It's something that we're actually... Now that I think about it more, going to talk about a little bit deeper as we go on. But there's a lot of experiences that could be done correctly in horror, but is oftentimes helmed by like the wrong person. Right. Um, and again, I think you should always be able to like dissect the art that you love. Lucky for me, Black Christmas is one that like holds up under a magnifying glass pretty fucking well. It really does. Yeah. Um, because a lot of the criticisms that this is actually a question that I get a lot. And it started when I was on El Rey and I was just like, I really love horror movies where I get a lot of people and they're all well-meaning. And I invite these questions all the time. Um, in general, I will sometimes I'll forget to check my emails and DMs. But if I have the time, I will always answer. Um, people asked how I can like separate some of the misogyny that exists in horror. And they sometimes bring up black Christmas because, you know, it's one of like the first slashers that started the, uh, sort of like, uh, the thing that was like the babysitter in the house series, even though this isn't like a babysitter movie because black Christmas was based on the urban legend of like, you know, getting a phone call that came from inside the house and that sort of, Black Christmas kind of kicked off and was a lot of the inspiration for Halloween. That was a lot of these like babysitter killing movies um, that a lot of people tied to misogyny. But what I bring up is um, how many other movies can you remember of the era in which women are talking and they have like desires? They're not talking uh, about a male character and how they should like push his story forward. Um, they actually have like speaking roles and are main characters and have development that happens to them. And I'm not saying that this is the case across the board. I've seen some pulp, but like by and large, even to this day, if you look at where speaking roles go to the most, if you look at where leading roles and like mostly like female helmed movies go to it's horror. Yeah. Um, and also a lot of those movies that most people point out were also directed by women. Um, so it's, it's, it's one of those cases where it's like, no, I went to it because it was where I saw me the most and it has its issues, but also it's one of the few that you can find a movie like black Christmas where it's mostly an all female cast and they're all very different from each other. And like one of the things I love about Bob Clark is he wanted to make them like astute young women that he mostly saw in the seventies, like a very specific view on co-eds where it was like, it's bikini and beaches and bingo. Right. And which I think is still like how a lot of like pop culture mm -hmm. portrays like sorority sisters and like co-eds like you know it's like those words sort of immediately conjure like oh yeah like the vapid ditzy yeah. whatever because that's how so much of media portrays them like that's just how they stay and that was something that bob clark didn't want to do which is why these characters kind of stay with you because also they're not all likable like i love barb but barb is kind of a bitch <laughs> uh and like I mean, that's a lot of the women that I love in horror. Shout out to China and Waxwork. Um, but what, is, what is the line that China and Waxwork has that's like an incredible, like, 
It's why I started smoking cigarettes <laughs> in addition to Spike Spiegel. Don't worry, I've quit. But uh, it's, uh, she goes, I do, no, I do what I want when I want. Dig it or fuck off. <laughs> such an amazing line. <laughs> amazing line. And those are the kind of lines that you could typically only find, like, attributed to women in genre. And that's why I love Black Christmas, because it's such a shiny example of what I mean when I talk about that. Um, where... Like that's that's those are the kind of characters that you get to get in a lot of these eras and still until now, because like look at most of what IMDb considers to be the top 100 movies of all time. I dare you to find me more than 50 percent on that list that has any female characters that have significantly as much time talking as the men. Yeah. Um, and they're movies that I, I like. I haven't looked at this list, but I, I would be willing to bet that that's probably Spoiler, accurate. it's a lot of mob movies. It's a lot of what? Mob movies. Oh, Which I yeah. love, but... <laughs> it is, yeah. Usually it's just a mom or a side piece. Right, right. Yeah, you don't get a lot of... Don't get a lot of women uh, in your good fellows and your godfathers and whatnot. Yeah. And so um, Black Christmas is a movie that I've typically watched like every holiday when I can. Um, I, somebody actually recently tweeted at me, Cam Banks, he wrote the uh, Cortex RPG that I do uh, tabletop gaming with over at Fandom. He asked me if it was scary. And for this, uh, kitties listening at home, I get to tell my first scary story that is real on this podcast. No, you've told this story on the um, podcast before. I know, but if you haven't listened to the Xena episode, I'm going to tell it again. All right. <laughs> um, so every time I watch Black Christmas, it taps into the feelings of being home alone for the holidays so well that I'm on edge for like a week after, especially if you're a lady that lives alone. <laughs> uh, you check your windows all the goddamn time. Uh and I love any movie that's just like stranger or break in. I've watched a lot of nightmare next door, which is like an awful true crime series, despite the fact that for most of my life, I've been a woman that lives alone. <laughs> and, uh, a year ago, Elijah and I went on a date where we went to go see a screening of black Christmas. Very cute. Uh, a bunch of people kept talking though, and we had to keep shushing them. So we eventually left, but I was still on edge for like a week. Nonetheless, Christmas night, Elijah shows up, we exchange gifts I'm like still kind of uneasy because I feel like someone's watching me in my building, which is true. I've had a peeping Tom before, but, uh, I look over and in the frosted glass with this halo of Christmas lights around them, I see a dude pressed up against my fucking window looking inside. And I'd like to say that I was immediately like, Oh no, or said something. But I think because I was in the presence of someone more capable of taking on a stranger i just squeezed elijah's leg and went babe <laughs> and he ran outside ready to fight and it was just a teenager looking at my christmas lights it was yeah a kid who was probably like 15 maybe and like it definitely like like a child age but like right in that teenage years of being like kind of big for his age so he had a baby face but was like the size of a grown man and I felt real bad because I went out there kind of aggressively and was like, yo, can I fucking help you? And he's, he's just like, no, oh. like, I'm sorry. The lights are really pretty. And I felt real bad. And, you know, I think it was kind of like, yo, man, you just, you got to be careful, like pressing right up against strangers windows is all, you know, but 
But it's one of those things where, like, that's terrifying and you can see how it, like, serves for inspiration for horror. Because just in general, around the holidays, you're on edge a little bit more and things just, things feel more perverse when it happens during, like, a holly jolly time of year. Yeah. Which is what inspired Black Christmas, actually. Um, Oh, Because in Montreal, around the holidays in 1943, um, there were a series of murders uh, perpetrated by a 14-year-old boy who, like, like, basically had, like, killed several of his family members. Bob Clark had heard about this, and it led to inspiration um, for both, like, what he wanted to attach to Black Christmas, but also the original screenwriter, Roy Moore. So we're we're not ruling out that this guy at the window, this this teenager who said he was just looking at Christmas lights. We're not ruling out that he might have been trying to murder he someone. He could have been trying to murder <laughs> now, someone. Now that we know that 14-year-old boys tend to strike around Christmas. It makes it all the more creepy. And so, like, there are these elements of both the screenwriter and the director hearing these actual stories and putting it in, which is what makes it feel so grounded. Right. Um, originally, uh, Roy Moore wrote the screenplay under Stop Me. Know that Black Christmas had a million different titles. Yeah, because I know there was one that was, like, silent night uh it's not silent, silent night, night evil night okay which is a much worse title <laughs> i was i was gonna say like i, I know it's not silent night deadly night because that's another one uh silent night evil night is is much weaker i think than both it's more ham-fisted yeah black christmas is great um although the reason studios didn't love it was because they thought it could be confused with a very popular uh type of film of the era which was black exploitation films uh, yeah, Blackula. There was uh, all of like the black exploitation stuff I'm thinking of right now is like uh, like Cleopatra Jones and stuff that mm-hmm. didn't like have black in the title, but there were a lot of those, so it would make sense that yeah, there'd be a few that like Black Christmas. Would yeah, be, yeah. And then um, I believe there's one based on like the intruder inside the house or something like that. I'm trying to remember, but it was like one oh, that it was like the stranger in the house the maybe. stranger in the house because that was when it was released on uh television so it's had a million different titles which i think is a is a worse title because it uh kind of gives away that uh the killer is a stranger i know it doesn't necessarily but if you call it stranger in the house and it's like well it's probably not her boyfriend yeah uh which is a fantastic red herring that the movie gives you uh which yeah do you want to do you want to talk about uh the the plot of the film for folks who maybe haven't seen it, which yeah. you should, you should go watch it. If you haven't seen it, please do. Especially if you're listening on Christmas day. Um, which visually gorgeous movie from the second it opens, uh, you know, you have like the lovely neon of all the Christmas lights. That's very much again stuff we've talked about, but like seventies horror is a look that everybody wants to replicate in every way now today. But for those of you watching, um, you notice that it opens in POV shots of a uh, sorority house on the outside during Christmas. And this is one of the first instances, if not the first, of the point of view killer shot in horror movies. This is how we get that Michael Myers point of view shot. This is the start of something huge for slasher movies. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, I feel like that's one of the most like iconic uh like tropes or angles like any time a, a film switches to that you're like oh i'm looking at them from the killer's eyes yeah you know? and this opens upon that where you're watching you know christmas music play but then you you start looking into these windows and realizing you're from the perspective of the killer and you hear that deep breathing which for audiences in the 70s holy cow um and basically 
from the point of view of this killer, who you never quite see who it is, he starts targeting these women in this sorority house. And they're a fantastic bunch of characters. Um, you have Claire, who uh, is very, like, prudish and sweet and meek. Um, therefore, by horror movie laws, is the first to go. I feel like usually it's the opposite in a slasher. Usually you get the uh, the prudish, meek one as, like, your eventual final girl. But, like, you know, you get the one who, like, parties too hard and has premarital sex. That's usually the first one to... I feel like that's usually the second one, because I feel like the hyper-prude yeah. either goes... The hyper-prude, I feel like, is never quite... Uh, like, the final girl still wants to kiss, but she's thinking about it. Okay. I feel like the hyper prude um, tends to go either pretty quickly or it, it's one of those like either or situations. But like there is we don't really get as much about Claire because she's the first to go. That's true. Um, I guess we could we could probably assume that Claire like read books, Cl- which Claire is like, you know, one of the people who usually gets picked off in the slasher movie. Yeah. Kind of like uh, case. We literally just watched Nightmare on Elm Street 4 in which the hyper sweet. I don't like sex nerd uh yeah, has yeah. an asthma attack in like class builds gadgets builds gadgets love her um but yeah claire's the first to go uh and then you have barb who i love the shit out of um who's just always beautiful and drunk and mean so mean and so so sauced so sauced so raunchy just gives alcohol to children um, gives fake phone numbers to cops. That's right. I forgot there's this scene where she's just giving a kid booze and she's like, I think this kid is fucked up. She's <laughs> like, he's wasted. Little son of a bitch. I forget what she says. She says something really absurd, like the little bugger is snackered or just yeah. like some words that I've never used. <laughs> it's pretty great. But that Barb uses, because Barb is incredible. Um, and also still a little more layered than that because she has a lot of like internalized guilt over maybe it being her fault that Claire disappears in the beginning um, because Barb is mean to Claire. Uh, And then you have Phyllis who uh, is a character that I adore because again, in any other movie, she'd be like the dork. Um, cause you know, she's got glasses and she's not as like sexual as the other girls are. Um, but is also just a really funny character that I love to see. And, um, it's interesting that her character is funny, but it makes sense because she was originally supposed to be played by Gilda Radner. Oh shit! I didn't know that. Which makes sense because she's got the cropped curly hair. Yeah, she yeah. has a lot she's of like like a Gilda Radner type. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She has a lot of like the funnier lines of the movie and yeah. some of like the more humorous parts. That doesn't go to Barb, but you know between Phyllis and Barb, they're both very quippy and very funny. It is it is fun like hearing you kind of break down the characters because you know obviously like I've I've seen the film and you know we we just watched it. I'm like familiar with it, but like something I I. I haven't uh, put enough respect on, I guess, or like given enough consideration to is that it is, you know, very much a slasher movie. You know, you have this, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, unstoppable uh, killer that's terrorizing them and picking them off one by one. And it, you know, really like lays that groundwork and follows, well, I guess set so many of those tropes and archetypes Mm -hmm. that, you know, so many others would follow. Uh, But each character like is not necessarily the the singular archetype that we're so used to in slasher flicks to the Mm -hmm. point that like 
in something like Cabin in the Woods, they can be, you know, parodied and, like, distilled down to, like, yeah, there's the jock, the nerd, the stoner, like, you know, like, each of these characters. Um, You know, like, uh, Behind the Mask, Leslie Vernon kind of, like, talks about it as well, which, you know, we've uh, talked about uh, how it has each of the, yeah, kind of, like, slasher archetypes and how important each of those are in this... uh, like template or blueprint yeah uh and yet black christmas like each character is just kind of like just feels more like a real person you yeah. know they, they can't be described in like the single word archetype they're you know just like people that you might meet at a college they just seem more developed and like yeah they're allowed to be funny and like also drink and like party with friends and like have a boyfriend but not be like you know the the slutty one yeah and, and like uh, part of it is also again Bob Clark being like I these are people that I know because Barb he said it was based on like family members and Mrs. Mac who is oh, the, the like house mother the house the mother who's very like you know facts of life different strokes like your Mrs. Hannigan type character except she hides alcohol everywhere in a way that the 70s was just like ha 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 she's got booze in the toilet she's got booze in the bookcase which we now recognize is like oh she had a problem Mrs. Mac had a problem uh, considering there's one scene where she's getting ready to leave and she only puts lipstick on half of her upper lip uh <laughs> mrs mac she is a mess at one point is brushing her teeth and instead of mouthwash pulls out a bottle of like fucking jim beam and it's just like yeah let me switch with this mrs mac is insane um and she basically looks after these girls but also like kind of resents them a little bit yeah. um and she's a really fun character uh that also gets taken out by this killer that keeps making mysterious, gross, and obscene phone calls. Which, I gotta say, the phone calls, like, from Go, from the first phone call that you get, it really, like, it's still effective. You know, They're horrifying. This was, this was 73, 74? Uh, 74. 74, and, like, they... The movie starts and the entire aesthetic of it, you know, because it is very, like, visibly a film from the 70s, you know, where you're watching it and you're like, oh, yeah, this is like a a classic kind of campy horror movie. Mm -hmm. And then you get the first phone call and he's like dropping the C word, which I feel like you still don't hear that often in like horror movies or most things. And he's like making mouth sounds. Yeah. And And, like, I I don't know why that's the the one word that we've all like uh, in north america at least like culturally agreed is like the worst one <laughs> and so like you you don't even get it in a lot of like r-rated movies yeah and he's like dropping that and just like saying real nasty shit and just being like really perverse and disgusting in a way that's like legitimately disarming and like you know you're like oh watch them like drink and you know it's christmas everyone's having a good time and then that call is so it's so much more jarring than you know even like a I'm going to kill you. I'm a murderer. Kind of like more overtly like serial killer or like slasher villain call. It's just fucking gross in a way that's really upsetting. And then they continue to be like so effective. Each of the calls where he he has doing different voices and making sounds that are just like so unhinged. And he's like talking about things that, you know, clearly mean something to him, but are like just like delirious ramblings you know he's like naming people like agnes Agnes. he's like it's me billy agnes don't tell them what we've done or whatever and it just like 
you know, it, it feels like there's there's just enough there that you almost get some kind of like a not like method to his madness, but like you feel like, oh, he's talking about things that are real to him. Like he's remembering something. There was some, mm-hmm. you know, like he's reliving something or projecting something onto them. But it's like, oh, whatever, whatever plane of existence he's in is meaningful to him. You know, he's not just like going, woo, blah, 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 like making sounds. It's like, oh no, this is like a dangerously unstable person. And On a like, mission. Yeah. And it's still effective. It like, you know, it, it feels... Uh, not like it, it feels like something you would like uh, see in uh, like interviews with like serial killers yeah. or something you know it's like that level of like unhinged rambling that's still sort of chilling and like meaningful somehow and the process for recording that was really interesting because um, it was a few different actors that would that would that all sounded similar, but, like, that's why the voices sound so different. Even Bob Clark was also voiced. But the person that primarily did the voicing, um, he would do a lot of it, stand, like, upside down on his head um, so that it kind of, like, compressed uh, his throat so that it sounded more, like, guttural and mangled. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was recorded over three days, and I guess they didn't really have, like, a script for it either. They just kind of went avant-garde with it, which is why... It, I think it sounds so good because it's basically like put yourself in the headspace and go. Yeah. Um, and like from first call, you get the tone of like some of the girls taking it really seriously. Some of them being like, oh, it's just a weird pervert. Um, and I love that you can tell the person that is really starting to affect um, is our final girl. Jess, uh, I, I do want to say real quick in the the different reactions to the calls. Uh, something that I love is is early on when they get the first like really disgusting one. Barb like takes the phone and you know just like tells the dude to fuck off, and they're like, you know, one of the other girls I forget who, but one of them is like, yeah, that that was like really upsetting. And Barb like rolls her eyes and she's like, please, in the city I get three of these a day. And just, like, dismissing it as, like, yeah, no, I'm not a stranger to disgusting men saying disgusting things. Like, this is is pretty normalized for me, which is horrifying in its own right, but also, like, accurate. And And it makes you understand Barb's abrasiveness to the other girl's concerns, which are valid, but, like, Barb's just numb to the world. Yeah. And Jess is, like starting to be more affected by it because she tends to be the one that answers the calls, but also because she's very frequently uh, picking up the phone, whether to make a call or receive a call from her unhinged boyfriend, Peter, um, who is, we mentioned it before, the red herring of this story. Um, They make it out to be Peter possibly being, being the killer the whole time because he's unstable. I wholeheartedly believe that if the actual killer didn't kill uh, these girls and, you know, we eventually don't really know what happens to Jess, I believe it would have been Peter. Peter would have killed someone. No, Peter was definitely on a path to committing violence against a woman, like... If not now, if not during the events of this movie, like pretty soon. Pretty soon, because the movie has an actually pretty great handling on 
um, how unhinged and terrifying a man is when he decides that he has autonomy over a woman's body. Yeah. Um, because Jess, who, by the way, is never villainized for this in a movie and ever in any other movie of the era, even now, probably still would be. We find out Jess is pregnant and she doesn't want to be. Um, she's pregnant. She doesn't want to be, uh, it's Peter's baby. She lets Peter know that she doesn't have intention of keeping it. Um, she doesn't want to raise it. She has a bunch of aspirations set for her life and it's her choice and that's it. And Peter loses his mind. Yeah. And something I love, you're right. Like she's never villainized and it's also, it's presented so reasonably. Like Peter is always the one who like on screen is overreacting. He's giving these really big, like, no, I'm emotional and angry. And she's always like very level headed. And at one point she has a little, uh, they're having a discussion. He's like, we have to get married and raise the baby. And she's like, Hey, when we met, we were talking about like our, or like, you know, early in the relationship, whatever we were talking about, like our, our hopes and our dreams. You wanted to be a concert pianist. I, you know, I told you what I wanted to do. Your goals have changed. Mine haven't. I still want the things that I want. So, like, I, I'm not going to marry you. Like, I, you know, I still have, like, dreams and hopes and aspirations. I'm not going to, like, put that on hold to raise a kid. And, yeah, Peter says, you know, oh, well, you can still do those things and, you know, marry me and raise the kid. And she just, like, reasserts, I don't want to marry you. And it's such a good, like, yeah, she's not being unreasonable she's not you know just like no but i'm gonna move to the big city and be a star you know it's it's not like ham like hammed up or like Mm -hmm. like in anything that any reasonable person could look at and be like oh she's being unreasonable it's very much like no i just i still have plans and this is not my plan yeah like even the detective that they're talking to that like eventually suspects peter um he asks why Peter was like screaming like don't kill the baby because it sounds kind of similar to what the murderer is yelling and he's like why would he yell that at you Jess and she tells the detective you know I'm pregnant I plan on not keeping the baby and the detective goes don't kill the baby that's weird wording for that isn't it like even the detective's like that's not killing a baby she's she's having a fucking abortion chill yeah and I, it's one of those moments where it's like, fuck, that held up so goddamn well because Jess is never the villain for that. And Peter is accurately portrayed as a maniac for losing his mind on her because he goes to violent ends. Um, and I really do love that to where he is given, even though he's not like the quote unquote villain of the movie, he is given the villain treatment. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's like he's you know, a a red herring with the the film saying like, oh, it's definitely going to be her like crazy boyfriend, Peter. And then, you know, the the final twist, uh, she kills Peter. She is also uh, like hurt or or wounded. We don't see the struggle, but she's like unconscious. Peter is dead. And then, uh, you know, last last twist of the movie, they, they leave her alone in the house in the bed. And then you see that the real killer is still in the attic. Oh, no. With the bodies of yeah. uh, Claire and Miss Mac. And um, which is insane to me that the detectives didn't uh, check upstairs. At I know any that's, point. that's the one like big plot hole for me, because everything else, like the the way they handle it feels pretty like oh yeah nobody's making like tremendous mistakes for the most part it's not like oh my god you idiots like you know most when when the actual detectives get involved it's not like the bumbling cops they're like oh yeah we're like tracing the call we're you know 
like trying to find this guy we're believing everything that the kids say which is you know the big thing that usually happens in slasher flicks is that the teenager is like this guy's trying to kill me and it's like oh you kids go back to school it does happen at the start yeah that's true with the there's the one idiot cop yeah nash who's just a fucking idiot. fuck of an idiot but then he gets called out and rightly bullied by the other cops <laughs> but no i i you know the the attic is the one big plot hole uh but no just going back to peter like he you know he's like killed in this struggle and he's you know red herring that you think like in the end like oh it was peter and i feel like he is so effective as a red herring because he definitely seems like he was gonna hurt somebody and so when when she kills him, it's like, no, it was understandable and reasonable because she's running from a killer. He's outside banging on the window and he's like, let me in. And then kicks the window in. He fucking breaks the window so that he can come like grapple with her. And it's like, yeah, no, Peter, you're a bad dude. You're a bad dude. He would have harmed her at some point anyway. And like, uh, I do want to get into the detectives for a second before we get into like the killer and like, the ambiguousness of the ending, but like you have your bumbling idiot detective, which is Nash, um, who disregards everything, despite the fact that there absolutely is something targeting these girls. And on a separate case, a woman is missing her 13 year old daughter and he like ignores her about it until eventually they find her dead in the park. Yeah. And so like everyone's heightened reactions were valid and he gets called out by the main detective on the case where it's like, you don't think any of this was fucking important. Like you don't think nothing could have been prevented by you like reporting this information to me, you idiot. Um, and you know, the main detective takes everything with like, more significant gravity um, as it should, because eventually like an actual body is found. But um, I want to talk a little bit about the actor that plays the main detective, yes. John Saxon, um, because upon just very cursory glances, he might be the most kicking and screaming actor we've ever talked about on this show. He might have like the, the best uh, overlap of kicking and screaming in his filmography in everything because uh he plays a lot of detectives um but the thing is he's in black christmas as a detective uh arguably you know the first slasher movie he's also in what is considered to be the first giallo movie Nice, um, nice. For those of you listening, again, that don't really have a super strong horror background. Um, word giallo, like uh, calling it yellow, it's the Italian word for yellow, uh, is because these uh, kind of trashy, sleazy, like pulp exploitation stories uh, got their origin in uh, what would have effectively been like zines, I guess. Mm-hmm. So they were like little uh, cheaply uh, photocopied uh, and, and cheaply printed uh novels and short stories and comics or whatever that were all like uh sleazy exploitation horror stuff uh and the cheapest paper stock at the time to print these and like distribute them on street corners was uh was yellow and so they would be these little yellow zines uh that you know were giallo books essentially and so uh things that continued on in that tradition of being uh yeah being the the yellow pulp books uh were were called giallo uh but yeah 70s italian uh uh crime and sleazy exploitation type movies i think there there are a bunch of stipulations for like what is considered mm-hmm. a giallo movie because like uh suspiria technically isn't because it's supernatural i guess people argue and so like 
it it has to be like just a human killer uh but yeah giallo films uh dario argento mario bava um lucio fulci which you can find a lot of them by the way um streaming through cinematic void who does a giallo january every year oh, um you and i went to one last year in which yeah. we watched like 10 in a row yeah it was great it was, great, <laughs> it was great um highly recommend it i think of my favorite it might be torso just because of that ridiculous last fight scene oh, torso's but good. uh bava directed what is known to be the first giallo movie which is um ugh, it had girl in it which is the girl who knew too much. Nice. Um, the girl who knew too much, which John Saxon was cast in. So who's an arguably the first slasher and the first Jalo movie. But John Saxon also uh, is proficient in judo. Yes. We love a judoka <laughs> and karate. Yes. Uh, and he co-starred with Bruce Lee in Enter the Dragon. That's right. He fights uh, He fights Bolo, who is also in Bloodsport. So that's a fun little... Yeah, Bolo Young. He uh, was also in uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, he was in a Dario Argento, Argento movie. Um, he was also in New Nightmare and From Dusk Till Dawn. Uh, he was in From Dusk Till Dawn? He was in From Dusk Till Dawn, the 1996 one. Yeah, the Robert Rodriguez yeah, yeah, still yeah. done, yeah. Um, so, oop, not the series, uh, which, yeah. sorry, I worked at El Rey, so I have to make the separations yeah, all the time. Sense. I kind of forget the series exists, so when you said the 1996 one, I was like, yeah, that's the one. This is <laughs> something that, that I was sense. used to at work being like from Dust Till Dawn, series or movie, um, right, right. because we also had a giant from Dust Till Dawn, uh, like, uh, like photo area that was initially used for the premiere just in our offices. Um, so that's, uh, some fun history as to why I feel a need to clarify because <laughs> I actually had to for a long right. ass time. He, um, also, uh, John Saxon was in an episode of, uh, Kung Fu, the return, the, uh, sequel series to Kung Fu, uh, still, I think starring, uh, David Carradine. I forget. Uh, is it, is it Kung Fu, the return? I forget the... It's Kung Fu the Return, I believe. Because, okay. yeah, I, I used to uh, have a bunch of, like, episodes of Kung Fu, the original series, uh, just, like, on VHS. Uh, and then I, I don't know, like, at what point it became the return. And I don't know, uh, yeah, if it, like, I don't know, was about his son or something. But I think Carradine was still in it. Anyways, he was in an episode of Kung Fu. He was in Enter the Dragon. He was in a bunch of horror stuff. He might be the most kicking and screaming uh, individual. He might be the most kicking and screaming individual. Uh, so definitely, uh, we should do some more like background looking into John Saxon, um, for a potential video coming up in the new yeah, year. Cause yeah. like love, love these folks that walk the different genres. Um, but a lot of interesting elements went into giving this movie the very unique See the very unique sounds that are kind of only black Christmases. Specifically, we were talking a little bit about the actor that would have to stand on his head um, to make the awful uh, phone calls at the beginning. Uh, that was an actor named Nick Manusco who auditioned in a chair facing away from Bob Clark and did voices until Bob liked one. <laughs> um, the music was done 
by forks and things being tied to the piano strings so that it gave it like a weird warble effect that was recorded on a tape and then played slower. So there were a lot of deliberate choices made. And for me, what I think the most important deliberate choice was, it was uh, Warner Brothers wanted a very clear ending in which the killer was obvious who it was and what their motive was. Uh, and Bob Clark didn't want that. And to this day, I think he was correct in that. Yeah, absolutely. Because the movie ends with you realizing that it's not Peter, that the killer's still in the attic, that they've left Jess asleep and sedated in the house and the detectives are leaving and the phone is ringing from the inside. Um, and, you know, it just kind of leaves you on this unsettled, like, you don't really know what fate befalls her, if she makes it out. And Something that I do like is there's uh, still a cop, like, sitting yes. on, uh, like standing on the, the uh, porch. Like oh, he's God, if it's Nash. <laughs> yeah, oh, God, if it's Nash, she's done. But, yeah, it's like, you know, they, they don't know that the killer uh, was in the house the whole time, obviously. And they just, like, leave one cop uh, out front to kind of, like, keep an eye on things, uh, presumably to make sure she's okay. Uh, but, yeah, it's it gives you just enough in both directions that it's, like, you know, she she might live, she might not. You know, like if the killer goes down and tries to kill her right now, like maybe she screams and the cop comes in and saves mm-hmm. her or maybe she doesn't. And yeah, I, I really like that ambiguous ending, but also the ambiguousness of the killer. Like we don't know what his motive is or why we don't know why Bill, Billy did. We don't even see him except for one shot in a shot that still fucks me up real bad because again you don't really see his face you don't really even really see a silhouette you see hands and feet moving about the house but at one point you see Jess hit the ground look up and see his eye looking at her through a door yeah. and it is so chilling because it was such a deliberate thing of like you never see him so the moment you finally do and you see that eye peering through the door it is pants-shittingly scary. It's a really, like, nightmarish shot. Yeah. It's deeply unsettling. So I I just love this movie. I love this movie a lot. It's one of my favorite horror movies of all time. And if you're watching it today, I'm sorry for the eventual, like, 80 times that you checked if your door is still locked throughout (laughs) the night. It doesn't matter if the door is locked because the killer is already inside the house. He's inside the Ah. house. If you have an attic, he's definitely in the house. That is something I've always... uh, appreciated about uh for most of my life living in uh relatively small apartments it's like it'd be real hard to hide in here it's like there's there's not a killer in here we don't have an attic there's no crawl space although now we got a crawl space we do yeah that part underneath the house where you just take out the grate and like a man can easily hide there Oh, no. Your eyes just widened in a very legitimate way. I didn't know. So, anyways, sleep tight. We don't have a um, space. <laughs> we do. I'll show it to you. It's an apartment. Apartments don't have crawl spaces. It's a crawl space. My brother tried to crawl under there. What? Why? Because he to was hide helping. in there and kill people? Yes. Um, now, I have to ask. I threw down the black Christmas gauntlet. How did you come to what you picked? Uh, I I will tell you. Uh, for, my, for my feature presentation... I chose Lady Snowblood. Lady Snowblood. And uh, I I came to it because uh, if if I'm if I'm being 
totally transparent. Uh, Ian McAndrew, friend of the podcast. Uh, Christmas hero. Christmas hero. Uh, DM'd me on Twitter and sent me a, a list, uh, which also I should, uh, uh, not that I assume that whoever wrote this list would be listening to the podcast, but I feel like I should pull it up real quick and like uh, find their name to credit them. I know it was on uh, Den of Geek uh, and whoever this writer was. Oh, you had help on this one, you fuck. Yeah, okay. So Ian McAndrew sent me a list from Den of Geek that was uh, top 10 uh, martial arts movies that have snow in them, uh, which is an amazingly specific list. I didn't know we can accept assists. Okay, it's it's an amazingly specific list. I'm so glad that it exists because that's exactly what I was planning to do was to just find a martial arts movie with snow in it because I'm like, <laughs> most... Most martial arts movies are not about Christmas. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm not an authority. I'm not an expert, but I'm going to confidently state that the majority of them are not about Christmas. I don't know. What about a Karate Christmas? Karate Christmas Miracle is the one outlier. And I think its qualities as a martial arts movie are dubious. Uh, but no, I, I was like thinking about it and I was like, yeah, I mean, you have some old, uh, like you, you have some, uh, like, Chinese martial arts films like uh, like Once Upon a Time in China that have uh, like Christian missionaries coming over from like England or America and like you know so you you have these ones that are like kind of taking place during like the Boxer Rebellion and you have you know Christians like showing up but you know a, a lot of uh, you know Asian uh, martial arts films are you know not coming from a Christian religious background and so you yeah. don't really get Christmas uh, and I was like I guess you know, there's a tenuous connection that I could like bring a, bring in a movie that has a Christian, but I'm like, that's not really holiday specific. Yeah. Uh, so I and figured that's just colonization. Yeah. It's just, that's just a bummer. Uh, but I figured, uh, anything with snow, anything that's, you know, got those good wintry snow time vibes yeah. so that it at least matches the aesthetic. Uh, so Ian McAndrew hero and friend of the podcast, uh, sent me this list by Craig lines uh, who I feel like I should be friends with because uh, it's a very specific article to write, 10 martial arts fights in the snow. <laughs> and uh, I got to say, I agree with most of this list. Most of the stuff on there was uh, like films I was considering, like the uh, the final uh, Zatoichi movie. Uh, not Zatoichi, sorry, the, the final Lone Wolf and Cub movie. Uh, the last Lone Wolf and Cub, the entire like climactic fight is in the snow. Mm-hmm. And it's also just fucking bonkers and great that entire movie is is fantastic uh there is a zadoichi movie which is zadoichi challenged uh the 17th entry in the zadoichi series fucking love zadoichi there's so many of them and they're all worth watching uh chinese boxer which is jimmy wang yu who was the first martial arts uh star that i asked to punch me and who is just a goddamn legend that i could talk about for hours uh sword of doom which is a masterpiece and was probably actually top of my list uh initially when i was like first thinking about it sword of doom is a beautiful uh jidaigeki like chambara kind of samurai film uh and i i remember uh the the criterion release uh i i still need to like i i want to watch it with like their their commentary Mm -hmm. and stuff because i know they had like some film scholar fancy types talk about it but i remember uh Somewhere on that Criterion release, it uh, talks about the uh, the final fight scene in the film and says that essentially, like, 
every filmmaking technique that existed at the time is used in the course of that that scene. <laughs> like what? It's, yeah, it's uh, just a just a beautiful like masterpiece of a movie, uh, and it has a really great duel in the snow. So that was like maybe top of my list, but uh, Ian McAndrew sent it, and I'm scrolling through. I'm like, oh man, House of Flying Daggers. Like I'm kind of like mixed on the movie but the last fight scene is still like in my top 10 i don't like i can't even justify it like the choreography is good but it's not like astounding there's not like you know any standout moments that you're like wow i've never seen that before but it's just like really emotional and visceral and it just gets me in a way that it's a very beautiful scene takes place in the snow it's a lot like, of feelings a lot of feelings so has flying daggers great one uh but lady snowblood which is my pick uh, was also on that list, and when I was talking with uh, Ian McAndrew, I was like, oh yeah, like maybe House of Flying Daggers, maybe Sword of Doom, that one's great, like maybe Lady Snowblood, and he was like, yeah, I was actually thinking Lady Snowblood, and I was like, well, he's he's right. <laughs> and so that, In so many ways. That's how I chose, uh, initially, that's how I chose it, was uh, because Ian McAndrew voted for it, and I was like, hell yeah, he's right. Uh, but having watched them back to back, it was the correct choice. It was the best one. So many visual elements, like the blood on the snow, especially, because also the blood in Lady Snowblood is that like pulpy 70s horror yeah, blood. It's a really bright red. Well, yeah, because uh, Lady Snowblood was uh, 1973. So it was like one year before Black Christmas. They were mm -hmm. like right around the same time. Uh, there's so, a like, lot of like pops of color, Christmas lights in the first movie in Lady Snowblood, a lot of it being her herself or like flowers. Right. Yeah, they do this really interesting thing with her visually where every scene that she's in, she kind of stands out. And it's like, I feel like a combination of her costume, like her costuming is always a little bit like brighter and more reflective than everything else around her. It feels like she's almost lit differently, but I don't know if it's just because of like the costume and the makeup she's always like got like lighter skin lighter costume and it mm -hmm. feels like it just like holds the light more so she's always just a little bit brighter and shinier than everything else she always like looks a little bit cleaner than like the you know the extras who are like you know poor vi villagers and bandits and stuff and so every scene that she's in she has this kind of like ethereal ghostly quality you know that looks like she's almost uh like on some other like plane of existence than these other characters which she is to everyone else um she she doesn't exist in their realm she 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 only wants one thing and she is only built for one thing yeah she and is vengeance. she is barely human she's barely human and like i also love that these are both like really excellent examples of their genre led by women yeah, um yeah. which was another very like dope aspect and what we'll eventually get to the ambiguousness of the fate of the heroine right right um but tell us a little bit about lady snowblood and more than anything yeah. this truly incredible plot so so lady snowblood uh was was based on a manga as uh as many things were uh, it was based on a japanese comic uh and is the story of a a child who uh was was born in prison uh, to to a mother who uh, basically years before had had lost everything to a group of uh, con artists and bandits. Uh, it was four people who had basically defrauded this entire village, uh, telling them uh, because there was there was a draft happening mm -hmm. for the war. Basically told this village, uh, you know, if you pay us, uh, you know, we're we're officials from the government, and if you pay us, you won't have to, uh, you know, be drafted. And of course had no such authority to do that 
collected all of the money and then you know we're we're going to leave town uh basically uh which also you realize like there was a a time in history when conning people was super easy yep <laughs> like and and even you know later when she's on her quest for vengeance it's like ah but like we don't know what any of them look like we just have their names like you realize like yeah there was no database you yeah. have photos of these people uh so you know it's a bummer that uh i missed my my chance to be a really successful con artist with very low effort. Uh, but these uh, criminals sort of, yeah, defraud everyone in this in this town, uh, tell them they'll get them out of the draft, and then, I'm not entirely sure why, but uh, kill uh, this this woman's husband and child. Uh, he, he is dressed in white, which at the time, uh, I think was uh, the, the government officials or something were dressed in white. He was just a school teacher. Uh, but they, they, you know, see his, his costume and they're like, oh, he's, you know, I, I think they were afraid he was going like, to... Or they thought he was a communist? Some, yeah, maybe. I, for, I forget. It tells you. The film fully breaks this down in like a cool flashback sequence. We were sequence distracted with, by the red on the white. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it fully breaks it down with a cool flashback sequence and uh, where it uses like illustrated like comic panels and stuff. Uh, very like beautiful uh, way to convey the information. Uh, I don't have a great attention span and missed some of it. Uh, but they see him wearing white. Uh, he was just a school teacher, but they thought he was this other position that uh wears white they kill him with swords it's really brutal it's horrifying uh they all murder him they kill the son and you get this like incredible shot of this young boy bleeding into the river which is now just blood red and it's so brutal <laughs> that like in a way that you don't usually see you don't yeah. see child like child murders that uh vicious on screen that often uh but also like aesthetically really beautiful uh Oh, other, other no, I was just going to say a lot of this is like handled really beautifully. And I like hate using the word tastefully, but like far it like lets these moments be for grief instead of just like uh, exploiting tragedy, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely, you know, there there are exploitative elements for sure, but it still, yeah, it feels like. It has a kind of reverence for the characters and, like, these emotional beats. Mm -hmm. It feels a little more sentimental than, like, just schlock or, like, sleaze. Uh, but, yeah, they, they kill uh, her husband and son and then proceed to assault her. Uh, they... they One of them, the first one that's killed, ends up, uh, you know, basically, like taking him as like a quote unquote bride, which is definitely not what that is. She's, she's basically kept as like a sex slave. Yeah. Um, and she like quietly plots her escape and kills him in the morning. No, not even in the morning kills him. Um, while like, like he's like in the process of assaulting her. Cause like, even though she's quiet, she doesn't want to be there. Right. Um, and it's a visual, uh, that's so deliberate and calculated on her part of like waiting for him to be vulnerable, to stab him in the back. Um, and that entire sequence from like Lady Snowblood explaining why she wants revenge and what happened to this woman that took everything from her, um, that very quickly you're like, oh, this becomes Kill Bill. Um, right. Like everything about what happens to the bride, everything about, you know, the people that she marks for revenge right down to like the exact blocking of several shots 
is yeah, no, what becomes Kill Bill. There's definitely a lot of like shot for shot remake of Lady Snowblood in Kill Bill. Uh, and yeah, the the like duel with a uh, Oren Ishii in Kill Bill, which mm-hmm. is like yeah, like in the snow and is very like Lady Snowblood. Uh, her entire character is pretty Snowblood, um, which is why a lot of why I don't like Kill Bill is because it's so derivative of better kung fu movies and better martial arts movies, in a way that like. I don't know. I, I feel like when you look at all of the influences and all of the things that are like directly referenced in Kill Bill, it's like these are all better movies. You took a lot of great stuff and made it like slightly worse. And it's just I, I don't know. Well, it's a lot of main characters that want to be main characters and have a lot of story happening at once. But like it doesn't really give anybody else room to exist. Yeah. And like a character like Oren, who is Lady Snowblood in this case, does have her own movie and it's great. And it's yeah, Lady Snowblood. It's great. Um, and like... I wanted to talk about this because I mentioned it a little bit before at the beginning. Um, but there is in both genres, a type of movie that's like seeking revenge for like, whether it be like rape or sexual assault or, you know, like these horrible things. And um, there it's interesting because it's one of those things where it's handled differently a lot of the time and it's cathartic for some and like triggering for others. But, um, a lot of the times these scenes and these aspects are shot in ways to where it's a lot of focus on like the actual act of it. And that's like the only thing that it has that conversation about. And it lingers a lot on like what is happening to the victim. Yeah. Um, uh, Usually you see this horror conversation happen with things like I spit on your grave. Um, Irreversible. Irreversible. um, And irreversible is one that's like particular. I I hate Gaspar Noe. Just letting you know right now. I think same. Um, I hate him. I I, I hate him as much as he hates his audience. I saw I saw Climax uh, whenever that came out. I like went to see it in theaters and I thought it was so fucking boring. I thought like it tries so hard to be like, oh my God, bad acid trip. Everyone's losing their minds. It's so fucked up. It's so brutal and crazy. Like, oh my God, the kid died. I push, I push boundaries. But it was like so much like what like a 16 year old thinks is edgy that it became extremely boring to me. It's so like, Yeah, it was like, I know exactly like what you're trying to do at every step of what you're doing and like none of it is it's just like not even interesting it's not like fun or shocking or it's just dull man i don't know it's just dull and like that's the thing about irreversible where it's like a horrible thing befalls a woman to drive a dude's story forward and the things about lady snowblood that i feel like especially like to me makes it cathartic is it's not so much about like the horrible thing that happens to her to drive the story because these are just horrible things that happens. It's about the quest for like writing the balance and the return to power. So of course those things are handled with not so much of like, let's make it linger on her and her suffering. But no, what we focus on is her being like, I'm going to have this baby to carry on my fucking mission outside of prison. I am giving birth to literal vengeance. Yeah, which I do love as a as a character thing that, you know, the the titular Lady Snowblood. Yeah, mm-hmm. she's she's born in prison after her mother's arrested for the murder of like the first of the four criminals. Uh and yeah, basically she describes like remembering her own birth 
like she remembers her mother telling her in the prison at birth like you are here for vengeance you exist only to kill these men and yeah i i love it as a as a setup for a character and just you know ultimately like what what she becomes which is someone who seems to like not feel or experience much beyond this singular focus this one mission that she has which is yeah hunt down and kill these people and everything is to that end and i i like it because you know you you see a lot of you know characters on uh revenge missions uh in film but usually it's because you know this thing happened to them and like they had a life that was that was torn apart by you know this crime or this action she never had a life she never had anything except this like the thing didn't happen directly to her it happened to you know her mother her father her brother it happened before she was born she was born in the shadow of this and exists only for this purpose like she never makes friends she never like has a romantic storyline she never has a job she never she just searches for these men and kills them (laughs) like that is that is her goal and she's yeah trained from a young age uh to to be this this sword master and assassin and and that's it that's that's what she's about and i i kind of love that because like she plays it very well and it also it creates this character who is just sort of innately tragic you know so there mm-hmm. is like catharsis in the in the ultimate revenge but then you like you have these moments uh where she she finds that one of them uh had already died he uh died uh, apparently in a in a shipwreck and so she goes to like visit his grave and is so fucking mad that she didn't get to kill him that she like breaks a sword on his tombstone and is just so like just like hot with rage that because this guy being dead isn't an enough it's not about just it's like not the point no it's not about the person like suffering for the thing that they've done it's about like you said that like that shift of power of her like taking something it has back. to be by her hand because the first person that she does kill um is a man whose daughter she meets and even like has a kind of nice interaction with like one of the few times that she shows emotion is meeting the first man who she kills daughter and um feeling that rage at like the grave of the second man. Um, but the first man she kills, uh, he cheats at a game that she's like covertly essentially like running the game for. And he's about to be killed by the guys that run this gambling house. Right. But they she stops him, him. And they're like, yeah, let's torture this dude and kill him. She's like, don't kill him. And I think they even kind of sends in her where it's like, Oh, she doesn't want him alive for like, fun reasons because she eventually hunts him down tells him who she is why she's there which she does with everyone and kills him where it's very much like your life is about to end i'm going to be the one that's going to end it this is why and it cannot be someone else it has to be by my blade and i i do love two things about that one is that they're like no we're gonna torture him first which she doesn't do so it's not about like the suffering because ostensibly he would have suffered more at the hands of these gamblers who were like yeah we're gonna like skin Mm -hmm. him or whatever she just like stabs him once it's over pretty quick uh so it's like it's not about torturing them it's about being the one who ends their life uh and two i love 
after she like saves him from these guys who want to kill him he's like oh you should have let him do it my life doesn't matter nothing matters i don't care i'm just a burnt out old gambler but then when she like you know squares up with him she takes him down to the beach and is like i'm I'm gonna kill you this is the end of your life here's why he starts blubbering and crying and pleading and like begging for his life and i do kind of love it because i feel like that moment is potentially like important to her you know to like yeah. take something from him and i i do appreciate that uh you know you get the moment of him being like ah, i don't care what happens to me and then ultimately being like no please anything but this it's it's cathartic. It's cathartic. And especially because you just watch this dude offer up his own daughter who's like so devoted to him. And like she's such an interesting foil to Lady Snowblood because these are both women whose lives were changed by their parent, whose lives were changed by like what their parent was like this is how you protect me. And with Lady Snowblood, it's searching for revenge. And for that man's daughter, it's basically like, I need to make money for my dad's gambling habit. And then eventually I need to avenge my father's yeah, death. Yeah. And so these are two women that are like marked by the people before them. Yeah. And so I love the two of them as being foils to each other. Um, but uh, it that, that first kill is so cathartic, which is what makes that second kill where he's presumed to already be dead. So frustrating. Right. And so eventually she looks for the third, which is the woman that was involved, you know, uh, you're Ellie and kill bill in this situation. Yeah. yeah. Um, your L, L driver, your Mambas, your, um, those characters. Uh, but what was, sorry, Mamba was the, was the bride. I'm trying to remember what L's was. I don't know. It doesn't matter. I don't even like that movie. Yeah, maybe so. I don't remember. (laughs) Um, Like, let me get all the details right. I don't care. But, you know, the the woman involved that, like, was also involved in the killings, but also was a bystander that was, like, laughing and taking joy in it. Yeah, yeah. And she hunts them down and has, like, a great fight scene. Um, But, like, how, how she dies is so fucking frustrating to for this character like it it makes me mad for her yeah so she basically uh you know she she tries to lure uh snowblood into a trap which she effectively does uh you know like snowblood shows up and is uh like shows up where there's a bunch of guys waiting to ambush her but she just just kills all of the guys you know like there's no like there's not a trap that is effective on this character essentially uh but she you know uh, beats everybody. The the woman has a gun, and she, you know, kind of demonstrates that like she's still gonna win this fight, sword against gun. Yeah. And so the woman uh, retreats, you know, and it seems like oh she's like running away. Like Yuki, uh, Lady Snowblood's name is Yuki, which I think is just the Japanese word for snow. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Yuki is like chasing her, you know, like oh, I got I got to catch up with her. You think that you know she's gonna like corner her and like finish this fight or whatever. She she comes into the next room and the woman has hanged herself, uh, which is like such a fuck you to someone yeah. on a revenge quest where it's like, ah, oh, well, I'm going to lose. Like, I'm going to die either way. I've, I've effectively lost this fight. But as a final fuck you, yeah, hangs herself. Uh, and Yuki's response is incredible, which is to uh, very like... Like, she's clearly angry about it, but it's such a casual swing of a sword with, like, one arm 
swings a sword and cuts the entire body in half. Which is like, <laughs> Fuck you, they're going to find you like this. Yeah, like she's cutting a piece of paper, just like slash, and the, like the entire lower half of her just falls to the ground, which is, which is pretty great. Which is amazing. And like the dude that's watching this, we should bring up, he, she meets him yes, uh, on her quest. Ashio, I think his name is. Yeah, he's, he's a bit of a, it's a moment that feels very noir because he's just like, I heard that you're a lady on a revenge quest quest and I want to write about it. I'm an author and I like, I, I, I write you know, like, I'm short stories. Man. I'm, I'm a newspaper man. I'm an old timey reporter. Hey. What's and, the scoop? I'm chasing a hot lead. And she's very much just like, you don't want to follow me and I'll show you why. And it's like a very like noir interaction almost right down to like him writing about it. And he basically like this is how they like draw out the character that uh, you know, she eventually slices in half like a goddamn pinata. Um the way they draw her out is he writes a, a, a short story about her, um, creating like a legend within the legend. Cause you know, everybody's like obsessed with lady Snowblood, Who's on a revenge mission. Is the story real or isn't it? And to the people that know it's real, it's real. Yeah. Um, but he eventually like witnesses her on it and very much like wants to be close to her. Um, but the thing is in her mind, everyone that needs to be killed is either dead or has been killed already. Um, and I do love that it's like, I guess my journey's over and he like wants to be close to her, wants to touch her, wants to love her, but she doesn't know how to person. So she kind of goes on autopilot for a little bit. Yeah. Cause she doesn't really have anything outside of this revenge mission. I also, uh, I, I like the comparison of it being like a very noir scene. A lot of like the soundtrack and some of just the moments in this film feel very noir, uh, but I feel like if it were, like, a classic, like, noir detective story, uh, Ashio is almost, like, the role of, like, the dame that gets involved. He is the dame. He's, he's the, the nosy dame. Yeah. He's the, he's the nosy dame looking for a scoop. And, like, Snowblood, like, Yuki being this, uh, yeah, very, like, flawed character that, yeah, like, doesn't... I feel like the classic noir detective, it's like, you know, ah, uh, they, they've got a good heart you know, and they get the job done, but they've got all these vices and they're like tortured by these demons of their past. I feel like her vice is just revenge. Yeah. <laughs> like her, she just is all, she's all vice. Uh, all vice, no nice. Ah, that's pretty good. It's no much fun, baby. I haven't made as much Christmas puns as I said I would. Oh, that's true. You got to get them all out. Quick, yeah. go. Putting you on the spot. No, it's fine. You it can, was really ice to meet him for her. Ah, uh, boo. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a McBain quote. I know. Uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, their relationship is interesting where he's just like, I want to love her. I want to, like, be close to her. And yeah, she's just, just like, like, she's really neat. You're here. And then, twist, it turns out the last guy who died in a shipwreck faked his death because he knew that Yuki was after her. And also uh, is Ashio's dad, <laughs> which layer upon layer, yeah, is, like is you know kind of matters, but like not that much. I guess it's like probably the reason that he comes back that he's like, oh, my son is writing about this woman who wants to kill me, but like their father son dynamic isn't super important. No, I feel like Yuki Ashio maybe, hates him. Yeah, I feel like Yuki feels like a little betrayed, but like it's not. There's not a lot of that. Because he's so ready to help her. Yeah. He's, he's like, like, I'll help you kill my dad. Yeah, he's like, no, let's get him. Uh, and in the, uh, you know, the final uh, climactic duel, which is just like a beautiful set piece. And like, uh, yeah, just very, very fun and visually gorgeous uh, kind of finale. Uh, 
he he has a body double that uh, impersonates him that she first assassinates before realizing like at a masquerade ball. Yeah, which is great. Uh, and then yeah, in the the final struggle, Ashio like kind of holds him because uh, he he's got a gun and is far away. Ashio kind of grabs him, and Yuki uh, stabs him through Ashio's back, uh, killing them both. Which is a a fun parallel to Black Christmas, where you have the uh, the lead. Uh, sort of uh not entirely accidentally it's both deliberate but like uh, they both kill their like would-be romantic interest uh in an attempt to kill the actual villain you know yeah uh which is a fun overlap uh kills them kills them both gets shot uh is stumbling out having been shot when the daughter of the previous guy that she killed now on her own revenge mission uh, stabs Yuki in the stomach in a very just like kind of walks up and Yuki isn't expecting violence from her. She just sort of walks up and casually stabs her. Uh, but I, I also sort of read that moment as like Yuki's job is done. So like, she's not even necessarily defending herself. Cause she doesn't like, I, I feel like after being stabbed, she could have like hurt the girl or like fought back, but she's just kind of like, Oh, and then keeps walking. She also smiles at her in a way where she's just like, oh, your mission's done now, too. Yeah, like everybody everybody gets to finish what they needed to do. Uh, and then, yeah, stumbles out into the snow in a very beautiful, uh, wintry, Christmassy kind of scene. Uh, falls down in the snow and then lets out this really incredible, like, guttural scream. And I love that moment so much. It's one of the reasons that this movie I think uh, to, to my mind is like uh, I hate using this word because so many like horror people use this word in a way that annoys me but like I, I feel like elevates itself above a lot of uh, like Chambara like really like bloody kind of hack and slash mm-hmm. samurai type stuff because uh, you know it is a lot of that and just being like a movie based on a comic book about, you know, someone getting revenge with a sword is like, yeah, it could be very kind of one note. Flat. And yeah, very flat and just kind of like, oh, it's fun and bloody. You know, it could just be a fun, bloody movie. Uh, but this this last moment is like the epitome of like what sets it above into being like, oh, no, this is like a classic film. This is like a, a great piece of, of cinema. Cinema. And it's, yeah, her collapsing into the snow, uh, you know, possibly dying at this point, like bleeding and just fucking screaming. And it's the most emotion you've seen her show the entire film. And it's like the most probably that she has felt in her entire life. And it's because this thing is done. And like, that was all she had, you know, that was... Sorry, that was just a device reminding me to take my birth control. Go on. Nice. <laughs> uh, but no, I just, I, I really love that scream. I think it's a really effective moment. I, that scream almost broke my heart the first time I heard it. Uh, because it was so out of left field feelings from this character that was presented as just kind of like, you know, a juggernaut on a mission. Yeah, but like she's, it's she's a revenge robot. She's a revenge robot, but like a little bit more is given to her than that. And like the actress does such a great job of just using her face, like quietly portraying a lot of these feelings that she has. Um, but yeah, I think 
these two together are such beautiful examples of the movies that they are that I think putting them together is just like, here's your perfect Christmas present. Yeah, they're both they're both wintry. They're both some good Christmas vibes. I would also recommend uh, basically look up that list of top 10 fights in the snow <laughs> and, and watch most of those. All the ones that I listed earlier, they're all great Christmas martial arts movies uh, because all it takes to be a Christmas movie is to have a little bit of snow. Just a little bit of snow. And, and the spirit. Which is why we're calling this double feature Snow Rest for the Wicked. Ah, that's really good. It was either that or Merry Fucking Christmas, but it's only Christmas for one, so snow rest for the wicked it is. Perfect. Love it. And I've actually been thinking long and hard about what our snacks are. Ooh, what are our snacks? Um, So far I have one, and it's for Lady Snowblood. Okay. And it's a cherry snow cone. Oh, that's great, because it's the red, it's the snow. Snowblood. Yeah, cherry snow cone. That's perfect. I'm trying to figure out what it should be for Black Christmas, and I'm thinking either some kind of, like, mulled cider, but, like, add booze at your own expense, but it has to be booze that you hid in your house. Oh, that's fun. Um, or, you know what? No, it's that. It has to be... Just, like, a spiked cider. Oh, what about, like, a nog? What about a spiked nog? nog? Yeah. All right, like a... it's Christmas. Although, if if you don't drink, um, just make sure you hide your nog for a little bit before you find it, a la Miss Mac. So you either get eggnog, and you hide some liquor around the house, and then you spike the eggnog with it, or... The non-alcoholic version is just nog that you've hidden. And this is in a theater, so it's a lot of people looking for their nog. That's good. I like it. There are only so many hiding places. Yeah, so we've got uh, some convoluted nog and a cherry snow cone as our official concession stand snack pick for the Snow Rest for the Wicked double feature. Love it. Love it. Um, And we love you. We hope you enjoyed this very special holiday episode of Kicking and Screaming. You can tell us all about it, um, whether it be leaving reviews on anywhere that you listen that uh, lets you leave reviews or tweeting at us uh, at KickScreamPod. We are also on Instagram. Uh, We, again, love hearing from you. You can find me under at NessGritten on all forms of social media. And where can the people find you? Uh... Often I'm found lurking in people's attics and crawl spaces. Uh, but aside from that, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Elijah underscore pizza. And yeah, please tweet at me. Uh, gets real lonely. Living That's with me? <laughs> yeah, it gets real lonely. We're going to have a conversation about that. <laughs> um, but as always, uh, if you've got some Christmas cash you want to spend, use it to buy merch or online screenings from so many of these theaters that need assistance because uh, support your local theaters so we have something cool to come back to when theaters open up again. Support theaters. Support theaters. And as always, we love you. Bye. We love you. Bye. Elijah's not a puppet anymore. Yay, I'm a real boy.